0: Maybe I like
1: Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, and of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. So first off, I want to quickly mention that I recently attended the November 18th episode of Monday Night Raw in Boston, back here in the present day, along with friend of the show Adam from the Nitromania podcast. Now, I wasn't actually initially planning on attending that show, but my wife got me tickets as a gift because she's awesome. So I have to, of course, give a shout-out to Henrietta Hugepex. And I have to say, it was a fun show. As I've mentioned recently on this podcast, I don't watch Raw very much in the present day. Typically, most of what I know about the current product is what I hear on other podcasts or when I see something start to trend on Twitter. But I did enjoy the show quite a bit. In particular, the match between Kevin Owens and Drew McIntyre was a real standout, and Seth Rollins versus Andrade was solid as well. And they also started an angle where Triple H was trying to recruit Kevin Owens to come to NXT, and so, by the time you listen to this episode, I'm sure we'll find out whose side Owens chose, but as I'm recording this, it's still ambiguous, so, uh, hopefully he made the right choice, whatever that may be. But anyway, yes, I had a great time at Raw with Adam, and just to clear things up in case anyone was wondering, I am not a hater of the modern WWE product. It doesn't particularly interest me as much as AEW does right now, to be honest, but I don't root for the company to fail or anything like that. I mean, folks, if you enjoy wrestling, watch what you like. It's not an either-or proposition. There's plenty of it to go around. However, though, if you somehow manage to watch all of it, well, then you have my respect yeah sure let's let's go with respect but anyway rewinding things back to 1999 here as you can see from the title of this podcast this episode of Monday Night Raw was a huge monumental show for the WWF bringing in more viewers for an episode of Raw than any other show in the history of the program and yes that record still stands to this very day and I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that it will never be broken I should also specify, of course, that they were able to do such a massive rating due to the fact that Monday Nitro was preempted over on the TNT network on this night due to the NBA playoffs. So yes, the WWF had Monday night all to themselves. If they had been opposed by Nitro, then, well, they probably still would have done a huge rating, but just not as huge. And in case you're curious about the viewership numbers, I will dive into all of that during the ratings recap segment at the end. But for now, with that table being set... Let's get in to Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, May 10th, 1999, and we are live from Orlando Arena in Orlando, Florida, affectionately nicknamed the o at the time by locals. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include Armageddon 2003, where Triple H ended Goldberg's only WWE World Heavyweight Championship run, Royal Rumble 2016, where Triple H was also victorious, 15 episodes of SmackDown, and 12 episodes of Raw, most notably the episode from March 31st, 2008, where we got Ric Flair's retirement celebration the night after WrestleMania 24. We open the show with a recap video of what happened last week on Raw, and in case you need a reminder, Mick Foley formed the Union to combat the corporate ministry, but those pesky evildoers got the last laugh at the end of the night when The Undertaker and Triple H threw Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock off the stage and threw some tables in the production area below. We then go live to the arena where the corporate ministry is shown arriving backstage, but then we quickly cut elsewhere backstage, where we see Vince McMahon and the Union arriving together, holding large planks of wood and flanked by three masked men wearing SWAT team uniforms. And mark this one down in your history books, folks, because this is likely the only time you'll ever see Vince McMahon siding with a professional wrestling union. From there, we queue up the credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight, and there were a lot of great ones, include Will Work For Head Mr. Ass Fears Toilet Paper Jeff Jarrett Pisses Me Off Bob On This I Heart Your Mom I Am Not Taping Nitro, which kind of goes without saying on this night Isa, Give Me Sex Later I farted, do you smell that? Road dog, come play in my kennel. I'm the one, which I just thought was amusing because The Matrix had come out only a month before this episode. And on a related note, Star Wars sucks. And by the way, this is nine days before Phantom Menace comes out. My weenie dog wants your puppies. I slept with Pat Patterson and all I got was third row. Where in the Hell is Sable? And uh, more on that coming soon. The Real Big Show is In My Pants. And the Oscar goes to Stephanie McMahon. Aunt Cookie is wearing soiled underwear. Jesus, poor Aunt Cookie and a sign with WCW's Slambery logo on it, but instead it says Slam Boring, which is great timing because that pay-per-view actually aired the night before this episode of Raw, so kudos to that fan for striking while the iron was hot. Also, we're in Orlando, the home of Disney World, but clearly many of those signs were not kid-friendly. So we kick things off by going right into our first match of the evening, one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions Kane versus the freshly heel-turned badass Billy Gunn. And when Billy comes to the ring, here's a moment that I completely forgot about. A sexy blonde woman in a short pink skirt hops over the guardrail and briefly hugs Mr. Ass before that security guard in the paddy cap grabs her and pulls her away. And yes, obviously, this was a planted fan, so apparently this is the direction the WWF seemingly wanted to go with Billy Gunn. He's just so goddamn sexy that women will risk being arrested to throw themselves at him. I repeat, Billy Gunn is just too sexy for his own good. I'll just I'll just leave that there. And for those scoring at home, the bell rings and it takes Jerry the King Lawler a whopping three seconds before he refers to Kane as the Big Red Retard. So nice to see that he didn't bother wasting any time there. And early on in the match, Kane is pretty much dominating, including bringing Billy Gunn from the apron into the ring with a reverse suplex, which Mr. Ass sells by landing on his face, then popping right back up to his feet, doing a little hop, and falling right back on his face. And if you want to see more bumps of a similar nature to that, hop on your WWE Network and put on Hulk Hogan vs. Shawn Michaels from Summerslam 2005. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. And then to continue the fun, shortly after that, Billy was working over Kane's leg by slamming it against the ring apron, but when Mr. Ass tried it again, Kane hit him with a boot to the face. Or, well, at least that was what was supposed to happen. Instead, if you go back and watch this spot, Kane's boot missed Billy's face, by probably about a foot, but Billy sells it by going to the ground anyway. No exaggeration, this may be the most business-exposing spot you'll ever see. Go back and give it a look if you enjoy cringe-worthy stuff like that, because... yikes. But for the record, though, I actually do feel bad for both of those guys because they're both talented workers, but that spot was just... not good. And then shortly after that, Kane rams Billy's face into the steel steps, which Mr. Ass sells, by slowly doing a timber spot. And at this point, I'm wondering what the fuck has gotten into Billy Gunn during this match. I think he's trying to make Kane's offense look good, and he's accidentally making himself look silly, but if you had told me that he was intentionally trying to make Kane look stupid, I'd believe that too. Either way, this is a very poor performance from Billy Gunn here in this match. But, anywho, Kane tosses Billy back into the ring, and he's about to step through the ropes, but Mr. Ass hits him with a dropkick, knocking Kane down and causing his foot to get tangled between the bottom rope and middle rope. So basically, Kane is now stuck dangling upside down in the ropes, which honestly looks kind of silly for a guy his size, but Billy capitalizes on it by repeatedly punching and stomping him in the face. That is, until... The Road Dog, Jesse James, and Kane's tag-team partner, X-Pac, run down to the ring. X-Pac tries to free Kane's leg, but meanwhile, Road Dog starts beating on Mr. Ass right in front of referee Earl Hebner, who does absolutely nothing. Eventually, the former New Age Outlaws brawl through the crowd, and it's at that point that we hear the bell ring. So, uh, did Hebner count Billy out, or did he rightfully disqualify Kane? Who the fuck knows? This match was just one giant clusterfuck from beginning to end. And to make things even more overbooked, while X-Pac is still at ringside trying to untangle Kane's foot from the ropes, D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry run down to the ring and start attacking them. D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry, who were last seen getting a huge face pop for their reunion on the SmackDown pilot, are now cowardly sneak-attacking X-Pac and Kane, so I just... I don't even know anymore, folks. Eventually, though, Kane manages to finally get his foot free from the ropes, after being stuck dangling upside-down for almost two full minutes, so Delo and Sexual Chocolate run off backstage, accompanied by loud Delo sucks chants from the crowd. So, uh, yeah, so much for Delo and Mark Henry being faces then, I suppose. But man, sweet fucking Jesus, what a mess this opening match was. Billy Gunn's bumping was a disaster, we have no clue what the referee's decision was, a tag team was just turned heel immediately after they got a huge face reaction two weeks prior, and your seven-foot monster was made to look like a bumbling idiot. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Let's just... let's just move on before I suffer a stroke here. So after a commercial break, we go back into the arena, where Vince McMahon and the Union are walking to the ring, accompanied by three masked men in SWAT uniforms. Hashtag the original shield. P.S. You may want to remember that part about the three masked SWAT officers for just a few minutes from now. Also, it should be noted that the Union now has their own theme song, but it's not the one with the steam whistle at the beginning. This one begins with a group of people yelling, We are the Union! which is more than a little bit reminiscent of how the old Nation of Domination theme song began. So clearly, Jim Johnston is running out of ideas. But so, we kick things off with Vince and the Union calling out the corporate ministry, and sure enough, Shane's stable does indeed dutifully oblige, and show up at the top of the ramp. The corporate ministry then starts walking toward the ring, as if we were about to have us another massive brawl, but before that could happen, well, we got a surprising interruption on the titantron from someone who is located rather far away. And I will warn you that this next part is a little bit long, but I'm going to play it for you here anyway because it pretty much sets up the entire show for the night. They're going to do
0: some union busting. Wait a minute. Wait a
2: minute. Watch out again. What's this? Come on. Come on. According to the old weather report, the weather is much nicer in San Antonio than it is in Florida.
0: It's, like, it's Shawn
2: Michaels. Obviously, boys and girls, the sheriff is back in town. Now, Shane, I saw what you did last week in your matchmaking. Well, it was okay, but it lacked a little a little something that the old commish is going to help you out with this week. Now, before we even get to tonight's show, let's talk about over the edge, shall we? Let's change all this. I don't like that. The WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, defending against The Undertaker with Shane McMahon, a special referee. I like that, but we need a little something else. You know something, Vin Man? You and I have been up and down the road. We've been around the block more times than one of the Godfather's red light specials. <laughs> but I'm going to call things the way I see it. So I tell you what I'm going to do out of the goodness of my heart. I'm going to add the old man. That's you, Vin Man. To this match, so there will be two referees out over the edge for this what? title match: Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Undertaker. The McMahon and Vince McMahon as special referee. Now, on tonight's festivities, see this—this this whole show is gonna have to gotta change this a lot. Gotta change this a lot. First of all, we're gonna start off with a little lumberjack match. We're gonna have Farouk. Versus, hmm, who's a good opponent for Farouk? I got it. How about Bradshaw? And even better yet, what? how about the Lumberjacks be all the members of the union? I like that.
0: Wait a minute. Now,
2: let's see here. That one's not. not and gonna Bradshaw work. Are partners. We're going to have a nightstick on a pole match with Test versus the big boss man. The first man to get the nightstick and shove that stick where the sun doesn't shine. Let's continue on here, shall we? Let's have a little return match. Everybody loved it last time, so I'm going to bring it to you once again. Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson in a tag team match against the Mean Street Posse. With just a little bit of stipulation here, whoever loses this match has to leave the WWF forever. Wow. What? man I know you're going to love this one. The world's most dangerous man will take off. The World's Most Dangerous Woman. That's right. Ken Shamrock versus China. Watch man! Watch old man! commissioner has got an eye on you. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hank, I know you're going to love this one, boys and girls. The Big Show is going to take on the meanest, baddest opponent he's ever faced in his entire career. The 10th, 11th, and 12th wonder of the world. The little tubby, fat Paul Bear. What? And I got news for you, Paul Bear. If any oh, of the I corporate ministry interfere in this match, The Undertaker, '86, is his title shot. At over the edge, huh? You to like that? Tonight? God, I love this job. We love this job. This is so much fun. Check there. Check there. All right. Now, in a hardcore handicap match, we're gonna have Viscera and Midian face. For one night only, your favorite and mine, Cactus Jack. Oh yeah, I know Practice. you're digging that. Practice. Okay, now we're gonna start with the one that's really gonna come out and grab you. if you know what I mean? We gotta have the chicks. You gotta have the chicks. We Uh-oh. love the chicks, don't yes. we? I know. I. We love puppies. Now, for the women's WWF Championship, oh, no. Sable. Yeah. Will take on lovely and beautiful and talented Deborah. But yes. this will be an evening gown yeah, Oh.
0: Evening gown king.
2: You can only and Sable, well, if you fail to show up, I know you're used to taking it all off, but if you don't show up for this one, I'm going to strip you of the one thing that you haven't taken off, and that's the WWF Women's Championship. And, oh, the, and the main event, the headline, the showstopping match of the evening, More? a six-man tag team match with The Undertaker, Triple H, and Shane McMahon in one corner what? versus The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin what? and that old boss of mine himself, Vince McMahon. Matt, Wow! This is, where, this, is where this is where I'm a little stuck. Help me out here if you can. you got to have a special referee for this kind of match. I and mean, this is a match of huge, huge proportions. And there can only be one guy that can referee this match. A headliner match. A main event match. A showstopper match. And the question is... Yo, yo,
0: yo, yo, HBK! I know you're hanging out in San Antonio. You're 2,000 miles away, but I'm running the show. I will appoint the special guest referee. Capiche? Kamish? You got that?
2: Shane, how did I know you were going to react that way? Maybe because you're a nimrod? Hmm? A simpleton? Uh, A... loser? Now, that's exactly why I sent those three cops out there in riot gear. Officers, please, if you will. Officer number one, would you step forward? Let's see who's behind that mask. Whoa! It's former Intercontinental champion what? Pat Patterson. Officer number three. The legendary Gerald Briscoe. Now, who is that stud, Officer number two? Is that a nightstick in your pants? Are you just happy to see me? Ah. Officer number two. Step up there and let's let's see what you got. Who is it? Now hit the music. man
1: So as you heard there, Shawn Michaels showed up on the TitanTron, allegedly live from back home in San Antonio, Texas, but we soon realized that it was all a ruse, and he was actually one of the three masked men in SWAT team uniforms in the ring, along with Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. Gotta admit, that was a pretty awesome swerve. Although I do find it funny that when Shawn Michaels was doing his pre-taped bit on the TitanTron, he somehow knew exactly when Shane McMahon was going to interrupt him, because he said, Shane, how did I know you were going to react that way? As though he was talking to him live. One of those things we just have to accept, I suppose. But still, though, it was well done. And so, just like Shane McMahon did last week, HBK then proceeds to schedule a whopping eight matches for tonight's show, and they are Farouk versus Bradshaw in a lumberjack match with The Union acting as lumberjacks, so the acolyte powers explode. A nightstick on a pole match, test versus the big boss man, in what I assume is the first nightstick on a pole match since boss man beat nails at Survivor Series 92. The Mean Street posse versus Patterson and Briscoe, with the losing team having to leave the WWF forever. Ken Shamrock versus China, and remember that China screwed Shamrock out of a win last week when she was the special guest referee in his match with Triple H. The Big Show vs. Paul Bearer, with The Undertaker losing his title shot if any corporate ministry members interfere. And by the way, as you heard Jerry Lawler say in that clip, Paul Bearer actually did a fainting spot when HBK announced that match. A hardcore handicap match, Viscera and Midian vs. Cactus Jack, so apparently Mick Foley's most dangerous alter ego is back for one night only. An evening gown match, WWF Women's Champion Sable vs. Deborah, with Sable being stripped of her title if she refuses to show up for the match, as she did last week. And in your main event, The Undertaker, Triple H, and Shane McMahon versus WWF Champion Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, and Vince McMahon, with Shawn Michaels as Special Guest Referee. Talk about a loaded fucking card. Clearly, with Nitro being preempted tonight, the WWF was in no mood to dick around, and I thank them for it. Sounds like it's going to be a good show, but I suppose we'll see how it all plays out. So after a commercial break, we get the WWF Rewind, sponsored by 1-800-COLLECT, and it is the moment from Raw last week where Paul Bearer handed a baseball bat to The Undertaker, and he smacked the Big Show in the skull with it. And I point this out for two reasons. Number one, it was an awesome-looking spot, and you should definitely check it out. And number two, I love the concept of 1-800-Collect sponsoring a segment that features attempted murder. If only that announcer guy could have chimed in with, that was your homicide of the week, sponsored by 1-800-Collect! And chances are they'd probably still be fine with it, considering how many people watch this friggin' episode. But from there, we go back into the arena for the first of the matches that Shawn Michaels booked, Union member The Big Show versus Paul Bearer, with the stipulation being that The Undertaker will lose his title shot against Stone Cold at Over the Edge if any corporate ministry members interfere. And by the way, one week removed from taking a baseball bat to the skull, Big Show is not even wearing a bandage on his head, so way to sell it, dude. I get that he's a big guy and he's stronger than most people, but come on, at least give me something here to show that you were affected by a spot that would, at minimum, cause severe brain damage. I mean, good lord, dude. But anyway, Big Show comes out first, and he's waiting a while for Paul Bearer to arrive, but eventually, however, Bearer pops out from backstage, and he wags his finger in the air as if to say, Nope, I'm not going down there. And so, Shawn Michaels comes, right back out from the locker room, holding a nightstick and still dressed in his SWAT team gear, so he basically looks like he's doing big boss man cosplay. He then essentially bullies Bearer into heading down the ramp, and then he shoves him into the ring, and the timekeeper rings the bell, so we are officially underway in what is Paul Bearer's first ever match in the WWF. HBK, by the way, sticks around to join the commentary team, which comes into play in just a moment. But first, much to my surprise, Paul Bearer actually takes a bump because Big Show boots him in the face, followed by an elbow drop, and then, well, Big Show grabs a mic and requests a... Slight change to the match's stipulation.
2: I got the urge to go in there and poke him with my stick and push him back into the scene. <laughs> Excuse me, Commissioner Michaels, sir. Yes, sir. I wonder if it'd be all right, maybe if we could waive that little stipulation and just let that long, lanky, tattooed dead man walk his ass down here and get a cut. What? If that's what the big show wants, that's what the big show can have, dead man. Come on
1: down! And as you might expect, that does indeed bring out The Undertaker, but he's reluctant to get in the ring with The Big Show. And so, to further entice him, Show hits yet another jumping elbow drop on Paul Bearer, at which point, the corporate ministry runs out from backstage and starts attacking The Big Show. Fortunately, though, Show's union comrades have his back, and they run to the ring holding two by fours, which causes the corporate ministry to scamper away. As for the match, though, Uh, I'm guessing no contest, since we never actually got a pinfall? Which means, technically, The Big Show couldn't even defeat Paul Bearer in a match. I mean, I'm just saying. But so, after commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is the evening gown match for the WWF Women's Championship, champion Sable, accompanied by Nicole Bass, versus challenger Deborah. So Deborah actually comes out wearing a red evening gown, very much in the spirit of the match. Sable, however, is wearing… well, I don't really even know what to call it, frankly. It's kind of like a long black coat with a built-in bra over a pair of thong underwear, so essentially, if Sable loses this match and Deborah strips her, she'll pretty much be topless by default, so you can probably guess who's going to win this one. However, before the match can begin, Val Venus emerges from backstage, Now, remember that Val has been hitting on Deborah the past few weeks, but of course, Nicole Bass is still very much after Val, so we have quite the love triangle here. Unfortunately for Deborah, though, while she's making eyes at Val Venus, Sable takes that opportunity to sneak up on her and completely tear off her evening gown. And so, even though I'm pretty sure the bell never even rang, Tony Chimel announces your winner and still WWF Women's Champion, Sable. And then, shortly after that announcement, Jeff Jarrett heads out from backstage with a guitar, and he clobbers Val Venus with it, much to the chagrin of Nicole Bass. Double J then heads right back to the locker room, but let's just say that you may want to remember that guitar shot for a little bit later on in the show. And so... segment over, right? Well, not quite, because Michael Cole is now in the ring with Sable about to interview her, but it appears as though Shawn Michaels may not be a fan of what has just transpired in the evening gown match.
2: Michael Cole's up in the ring. I see, I see, I don't know. It's
0: Sable. I don't I so. uh, what are you going to do? Well, I got to go Sable, you didn't come to Raw tonight expecting to defend the women's championship, but defend it, you did. Where's Shawn going? Well, you know, Michael... I-
2: First of all, step off, mister.
0: That's from the commissioner of the WWF, Shawn Michaels.
2: Now, being the old commissioner of the World Wrestling Federation, I see an evening gown match a little bit differently. I see the rules just a smidge differently than you do, Sable. See, as far as I'm concerned, with puppies like that, Especially ones we haven't even seen already. I figure the woman who gets her evening gown taken off is the winner. So, ladies and gentlemen, the new Women's World Wrestling Federation champion, Deborah!
1: Okay, so just to be clear, thanks to a rather generous ruling by Shawn Michaels, the WWF Women's Championship just changed hands because Deborah got stripped of her evening gown. That is how a belt changed hands in the WWF, folks. It makes no sense, and yet with where we were as a society in 1999, it also makes perfect sense. So yes, your new WWF Women's Champion ending Sable's reign at almost six months is Deborah. Why did they take the belt off of Sable? Well, let's just say that I have a bit more on that in the Wrestling Observer segment at the end of the show, but needless to say, things are a bit acrimonious at the moment between Sable and the WWF. And, unfortunately for you Sable fans out there, I'm afraid I have some bad news. This is Sable's final match on Monday Night Raw in the Attitude Era, and to put a finer point on it, she'll actually be gone from the company entirely very soon. Spoiler alert, though, she will eventually come back in 2003, but that's obviously well after the point where this podcast will end. In all honesty, I don't have as many negative feelings for Sable as a lot of people do. Is she a bad wrestler? Yes, of course she is, but it's not like she's running in front of a camera and people are helpless to stop her. Vince McMahon's putting her on TV because her segments get massive ratings. And on top of that, she got really fucking over with the fans. So no, she's not an in-ring technician, but guess what? She was a huge part of the Attitude Era, whether we like to admit it or not. So kudos to Sable for making a huge impact during a time when the business was hotter than it's ever been. And with that in mind, as is the tradition for someone's final match in the Attitude Era, we must send Sable to wrestler heaven. Sable. You were the most popular woman during the most popular period in wrestling history, so I will tip my cap to you. And after commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, union member Tess holding a large plank of wood versus corporate ministry member the big boss man in a nightstick on a pole match. And as soon as the bell rings, we get a loud boss man sucks chants, to which I always ask the same question. Is that heel heat, or is it that the fans just really don't want to see him? I'll give Bossman some credit and say that it's the former. But early on, Tess knocks Bossman down with a clothesline, and then he starts climbing the turnbuckle to try and retrieve the nightstick, at which point Bossman grabs Test's tights and pulls them down, full-on exposing Tess's bare ass, which, I will note, is not censored on the WWE Network. So if you're in the mood to see Tess's ass, I encourage you to check out this match. And I have to say I expected this one to be pretty short, but somehow Test and Bossman ended up going for seven minutes, which I dare say was a few too many. But eventually the Bossman started climbing the turnbuckles, which Test countered by sneaking up on him and hitting Bossman with an electric chair drop. From there Test climbed up, and he did indeed grab the nightstick. However, it should be noted that grabbing the nightstick does not end the match, it only enables you to use it. And unfortunately for Test, he never gets the chance to use it, because Bossman immediately whacks him in the stomach with one of those retractable batons. Bossman then picks up the nightstick, and for some reason, Test attempts to take him down with a sunset flip, which Bossman counters by whacking him in the face with said nightstick. I mean, really, what the hell were you thinking there, Test? You're like, six foot six, why the fuck are you trying to do a sunset flip, especially when Bossman is holding a nightstick? But anyway, Bossman then simply sits down on the chest of Test, Tim White makes the count, and that is indeed good enough to secure the three count. Your winner, The Big Bossman. And honestly, I'm pretty surprised by that result, because Test is a young up-and-comer, and and Bossman hasn't won a match via pinfall since he defeated Al Snow on Sunday Night Heat two months ago. So not an impressive track record for the Bossman lately, but he gets back in the win column tonight. I guess you have to protect him in what is clearly his signature match. And so, after a commercial break, we go backstage, where Michael Cole is with Val Venus, and amusingly, when Cole begins to ask him a question, Val puts his hand over Cole's mouth to silence him, something we all wish we could do. And an angry Val then proceeds to call out Jeff Jarrett for trying to prevent Deborah from getting some of the Big Val and also for continuously taking people out with guitars. Val says he wants Jarrett in the ring tonight, where he will show him that, quote, the guitar shot, will never measure up to the money shot. In fairness, though, both of them do involve explosions in someone's face. So from there, we head back into the arena for our next match, and it is the hardcore handicap match, Midian and Viscera versus, for one night only, the returning Cactus Jack. By the way, I love the notion that Shawn Michaels has the power to actually demand that Mick Foley return to his Cactus Jack persona. You would think that would be Foley's call, but no, the commissioner says you have to be Cactus Jack, and so, Cactus Jack you shall be. On that same note, though, if HBK said he wanted Midian to go back to being Phineas Godwin for this match, would he have had to honor that? The world may never know. And for those scoring at home, this is the first time we've seen Cactus Jack in the WWF since the April 8th, 1998 episode of Raw, On that show, Foley cut a promo about how he and Terry Funk had been attacked by the new version of DX, but while they were lying beaten on the ground, the crowd chanted for Stone Cold Steve Austin. And so he told us that it would be a long time before we ever saw Cactus Jack in a WWF ring again, which of course facilitated his transition back into the corporate dude love. And in fairness, I guess Foley really did live up to his promise because it's been 13 months since he appeared as Cactus Jack, so good for him for actually sticking to the gimmick. But anyway, tonight he's back, and because Cactus Jack is the king of hardcore, he comes out from backstage holding some devastating weapons to, uh, basketballs. Okay then. But they prove to be effective because Midian charges at Cactus while he's coming down the aisle and Foley throws the basketball right into his crotch. The old basketball to the balls trick works every time. And early on, in a moment that really surprised me, Cactus went to the ring apron and did a diving somersault onto Midian down on the arena floor. Mick Foley going airborne. Who would have thought? But then, a little bit later, Midian gets some revenge when he grabs a steel chair.
0: Hundreds, I guess. It just well, scrambles the brains. Too many to caught Mick right in the face. There'll never be another Mick Foley, and we may never see Captain Jack. Man, again after tonight, that was a, a vile, nasty shot right to the face.
1: Here's the telltale sign when you know you're taking too many chair shots to the head, when you're letting Friggin Midian, the jobberist of jobbers, wear you out with one. And by the way, it's retroactively rather telling when you listen to Jim Ross's commentary there, as he's saying how much he hates vicious chair shots like that because, quote, "...it just scrambles the brains." Because remember, we had no idea about the severity of concussions back in 1999. Uh Uh-huh. But fortunately for Foley, though, he does manage to get a bit of revenge a little bit later on, as he puts a garbage can over Midian's head, and then he smashes the can with a chair, so at least that's somewhat of a receipt, I suppose. And shortly after that spot, we get our finish. So with Cactus Jack and Viscera brawling on the ring apron, Cactus hits a low blow on the big man, knocking him down to the arena floor. From there, Midian charged at Cactus with a chair, but Foley elbowed it back into Midian's face, and Foley then grabbed the chair, got a running start on the ring apron, and yes, he then dove down to the floor, crashing the chair onto Viscera. He made the cover, referee Teddy Long made the count, and surprisingly, that was good enough to get the 1, the 2, and the 3. Your winner in this one-night-only return match, Cactus Jack. Also, by the way, how sad is it that the corporate ministry just lost another handicap match, and the guy taking the pinfall was your massive 500-pound dude. Viscera, the world's largest job machine. And then after the match, Foley even throws Viscera into the steel steps, just for good measure. Alrighty. But then, I immediately begin to hate my life, because we get a very clear camera shot of that piece of shit, Bruce fucking Pritchard, running down the aisle and collecting the basketballs which Foley had brought out at the beginning of the match. In fact, at one point, for some reason, Pritchard is actually in the foreground of the shot, while Foley is in the background, walking back to the locker room. And keep in mind, no one on commentary actually acknowledges who Pritchard is. For the purposes of this segment, he's just generic stagehand picking up basketballs. But unfortunately, we all have to suffer by seeing him on camera. And honestly, I could probably fill another hour of this podcast just by ranting on how much I hate Bruce Pritchard, but at this point, I'll just, I'll quit while I'm behind. So anyway, we then cut backstage, where Michael Cole was with China, and well, I'm just going to go ahead and play her promo for you here, because, well, she has some rather... Interesting things to say. China, you may have stepped in it last week. Because of your actions in the Ken Shamrock Triple H match, you've been booked in a match against Ken Shamrock tonight. The world's most dangerous man against the world's most dangerous woman.
2: First of all, I take offense to that, Michael Cole. See, let me explain something to you. Every 28 days, I get a little bit moody. Yesterday just happened to be 27. You see, Kenny, tonight, the balls are in my court and I just might rip them off and step on
1: them. Well, that is certainly some uh refreshing honesty from China there, I suppose. Also, where the hell are Terry Runnels and Jacqueline when you need them? China is literally referencing PMS here, so those two should be the first ones on the scene to recruit her. Alas, not to be, but props to China for gracing us with what I think may be the first ever menstruation promo in wrestling history. The ground has been broken. And after a quick commercial break, we get what I can best describe as a reintroductory vignette for, of all people, Steve Blackman. The last time we saw Blackman in a televised match was about a month ago, on the April 4th episode of Sunday Night Heat, where he lost to Val Venus. And prior to that, Blackman hadn't won a televised match since February 22nd, when he beat Draws on an episode of Raw. So basically, Blackman has been a total loser for quite a while, but now they're doing vignettes where he's twirling nunchucks, swinging a kendo stick, and smashing blocks of cement, so I guess we're just supposed to ignore his previous jobber incarnation and see him as a threat now because... martial arts? And also, perhaps most crucially, this vignette introduces us to what will become his brand new theme music. Okay, admittedly, the new theme song does help. And honestly, the music combined with seeing Blackman doing all that crazy martial arts stuff does actually look pretty friggin' badass. The problem is that I feel like this would have been much more effective if they had done it before he debuted. At this point, we already know who Steve Blackman is. He's the boring lower mid card guy who wears black pajama pants. And again, he's been off TV for one month, and he's coming back as the same guy without being repackaged into a different gimmick, so why should we care this time around? Again, I repeat, because martial arts. Okay, then. And so we go back into the arena for our next match, as scheduled by Commissioner Shawn Michaels, Acolyte Bradshaw versus Acolyte Farouk in a Lumberjack match with The Union acting as Lumberjacks, holding their 2 by 4s And by the way, Mankind actually doesn't arrive until just after the match begins, which I suppose we can assume is because he had to change out of his Cactus Jack attire, so fair enough there. But before we get into the match, surprisingly, before it begins, we actually get the Acolytes dueling on the mic at a time when neither guy was really ever getting a chance to cut a promo. And so, let's take a listen to how that goes down.
0: I know that poke-ass Shawn Michaels thing, he's gonna come out here and make me and my partner fight each other for your amusement? No, I don't think so. Because you and I know if there was a match, who the winner would be. Right, partner? Well, who would the winner be? I think that's what they're discussing right now. You you don't think, hey, Farouk, Last six months, every night, I've proven I can out drink you. Don't make me beat your ass to prove I can outfight you. Uh-oh. What did I tell you, JR? Well I'll be damned. Damn. It's real easy. We got a heck of a team. Don't make me ruin it by handing you your ass.
1: So first of all, I love that Farouk says, well, I'll be DAMNED, to which Jim Ross then repeats the word damn on commentary, and this is a full seven years before that became a recurring joke for Ron Simmons. And yes, I know it's kind of a catchphrase for him when he and Bradshaw, spoiler, take on another incarnation of this tag team, but I thought it was pretty amusing to see him bust out a DAMN seven years before it becomes an ongoing joke. But anywho, both Farouk and Bradshaw clearly think they could beat the other man up, and so, once Bradshaw puts the mic down, both men do indeed punch each other right at the same time. So the match is on, tag team partner versus tag team partner. And I have to say, I was actually kind of looking forward to this, because these two guys are notorious for stiffing the shit out of their opponents, so I was hoping this match would end up being a giant potato fest as well. And sure enough, we do actually get some of that, particularly when Farouk whips Bradshaw into one of the corners, and then the future JBL comes out swinging with a ridiculously stiff clothesline. And of course, even though he almost took his best friend's head off, it barely gets any reaction from the crowd, because no one gives a fuck about Bradshaw. And nor should they. Fuck him. But then, mark this one down, folks, because you'll probably never see it again, Bradshaw goes to the top rope, where he attempts what I think was supposed to be a crossbody, but Farouk catches him in midair and power slams him, which was actually pretty impressive. JBL taking to the skies, and still not getting over. Go figure. So of course, after both Acolytes are dumped to the floor several times and then tossed back into the ring by the Union, they start rolling around on the canvas and punching each other in the face, at which point... Midian and Viscera come out from backstage to separate them. However, instead of thanking them, Farouk punches Viscera and Bradshaw lays out Midian. This then brings out the big boss man, who gets between everyone and attempts to restore order, and it appears as though bossman is successful at calming them down, at which point the Union uses that to their advantage by sneaking into the ring with their 2x4s. All of the corporate ministry members then scramble out of the ring, except for Viscera because, uh, well, he can't really run anywhere to say the least. And so, not only did Big Vis do the job to Cactus Jack in the last match, but now he gets to take a beating from four guys, hitting him with planks of wood. And to prove how useless he is, he even takes a comically bad bump, getting hit in the back with a 2 by 4 from Test, and then taking about a second too long to sell it, before doing a belly flop down to the canvas. I ask this often when Viscera's on TV, but I'll ask again, how does this guy have a job? But, anyway, presumably the match is ruled as a no contest since the Acolytes just up and left, but now, less than two weeks after the corporate ministry was established, we're already teasing a breakup. To say that this faction has looked like a dismal failure since it was created would be quite the understatement at this point. Just terrible. And so, after commercial break, we go back into the arena where it is now time for our next match, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe versus Mean Street Posse members Rodney and Pete Gass, with the losing team being forced to leave the WWF forever. Now remember, this is a rematch from last week on Raw, where Patterson and Briscoe were ordered to face Rodney and Pete Gass, and they easily kicked their asses, surprisingly getting a huge reaction from the crowd in the process. And so this week, Patterson and Briscoe actually have their own theme music, and, well, it might sound a little bit familiar. So yes, in a not-so-subtle dig at the aging Hulk Hogan, the 58-year-old Patterson and 52-year-old Briscoe enter to Hogan's classic WWF theme song, Real American, and they even do Hogan's signature posing routine at the top of the ramp, tearing their SWAT team shirts off in the process. Pretty funny stuff. At this point in time, the WWF hardly ever acknowledged WCW since they were so far ahead in the ratings, but I think a good-natured jab like this is perfectly fine. And I'm probably in the minority, but I actually kinda enjoy it in the present day when the WWE and AEW talk shit on each other. I just get a kick out of it, but maybe that's just me. So anyway, before the bell even rings, the Mean Street Posse wisely jump Patterson on the floor and throw him face-first into the ring post, which pretty much takes him out of the match in the early going. Back in the ring once the bell sounds, Rodney and Pete gas then double-team Briscoe, and I can't help but think to myself... I wonder how Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe feel about having to sell for two barely-trained workers who are actually just childhood friends of Shane McMahon. Two proud legends selling the offense of Pete Gas. I imagine that probably didn't sit very well with them. But anyway, eventually Patterson recovers, and he re-enters the ring. Briscoe then nails Pete Gass with a suplex, and Patterson attempts to crotch Rodney on the top rope, but instead Rodney botches it, and he kind of just falls out of the ring and down to the floor. So again, I repeat, untrained workers. But no matter, because Rodney rolls right back into the ring, where Patterson puts him into a Boston Crab, and Briscoe hooks Pete Gass in a figure four, which results in dueling submissions. Your winners of the match, Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, which means that the Mean Street Posse must now leave the WWF forever. And obviously, this stipulation is ironclad, and sure enough, we will never see Rodney and Pete Gass in the company ever again. You can take that to the bank. And after the match, they once again queue up Real American, and both Patterson and Briscoe yet again do the Hulk Hogan posing routine, with Jim Ross saying about Patterson, quote, "...and he's single, fellas!" Good old JR just publicly outing Patterson on national television. Nice one, Jim. And yes, as I alluded to in our last episode, somehow this match, of all things, draws a notoriously massive rating on this night. Well, actually, the whole show draws a massive rating, but this segment in particular caused people to take notice when they saw how many people were glued to their screens for it. More on that later, but let's just say the Stooges and the Posse equal huge draws, apparently. So from there, we go backstage, where Michael Cole is with Ken Shamrock. And surprisingly, the world's most dangerous man is actually rather somber about the fact that he has to face China tonight. He says he was raised in group homes and juvenile homes, and he was taught that anyone who puts a hand on a woman would pay a serious price. So even though he has to face China tonight, he really has no idea how the match is going to play out. So just, to, just be sure to file that one away for later. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena, where Val Venus' music plays, and then it immediately cuts off, and instead we get Jeff Jarrett's music, and sure enough, Double J then comes to the ring, along with your new WWF Women's Champion, Deborah. I'm just gonna go ahead and assume that them playing Val's music there was a mistake on their part, actually. So Jarrett then grabs a mic and mocks Val's Hello Ladies catchphrase, at which point, yes, Val's music plays once again, and this time he actually does come out from backstage, so it appears that the match is on, Val Venus versus Jeff Jarrett in a battle of alliterative mid-carters. And Val is apparently none too pleased about Jarrett clobbering him with a guitar earlier tonight, so he gets things started by running down to the ring and brawling with Double J on the floor for a while. And surprisingly, these two then proceed to have a lengthy, very nice match. And I say surprisingly because, remember, this is... NOT one of the matches Shawn Michaels booked earlier tonight. For storyline purposes, this match was basically just thrown together because Jarrett nailed Val with a guitar, and then Val called him out because he wanted revenge. So, imagine my surprise when I saw that this match ends up getting 8 minutes of television time. I mean, for two mid-card guys like Val and Jarrett, that's pretty much a match that they could have done on pay-per-view. But instead, we get it tonight on Raw, so that was a nice little treat. Not that the Orlando fans noticed all that much, since they were frequently chanting, we want puppies at Deborah." but hey, welcome to 1999. And speaking of puppies, they did indeed factor into the finish. So with Jarrett down on the mat, Val climbed to the top rope, presumably to attempt his money shot finisher. However, at that point, Deborah got up on the ring apron and removed her suit coat, displaying her bra for the world to see. And so, amusingly, instead of hitting Jarrett with his finisher, Val just... Steps down from the top rope and walks over to make out with Deborah. However, that proved to be the big Valboski's undoing because while he was kissing Deborah, she tossed her newly won women's title to Jarrett behind Val's back. Deborah then slapped Val, and referee Earl Hebner went over to Deborah to admonish her, at which point Jarrett smacked Val in the face with the belt. Double J then slid the title out of the ring, he covered Val, Hebner turned back around, and yes, he counted the one the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, Jeff Jarrett. And after the match, Deborah pointed at the fallen Val and badmouthed him, so it appears that she may have been setting him up all along to make him think that she was actually interested in him. Pretty crafty. Also, this may actually be the best night of Deborah's career. She wins the women's title, and she helps Jeff Jarrett get a win as well. Very impressive. And speaking of cleavage, well, After a commercial break, we go to another pre-taped vignette, featuring Beaver Cleavage. This time around, his mother is tending to his knee, which he apparently somehow got all bloody from a mishap on the swing set. And maybe this is just me, but if you listen to this vignette, I can't help but think that Beaver Cleavage slash Mosh slash Chaz Warrington, whatever you want to call him, is just going through the motions and saying these lines with no passion whatsoever. It's almost as if he knows that this is the dumbest shit ever, but he still has to say his lines anyway. But take a listen and see if you agree. Harry Beaver Cleavage, how did this happen?
2: Well, I was on the swing set. I wanted to see how high I could go, you know,
0: so I could reach up and touch the sky. And, well, it didn't really work out the way I planned.
1: Well, you just relax and let Mother take care of the split knee for you. We can't have a split beaver running around now, can we?
2: Thanks, Mom. When it comes to working on your knees, my mom is the expert.
1: I think that may be the most bored I've ever heard someone while they're somehow getting away with making a split beaver joke. Good Lord. Also, let it be known that in the highest rated episode of Monday Night Raw they've ever had or ever will have beaver cleavage was on the show so obviously this means beaver cleavage equals ratings and i'm sure we'll be seeing a lot of him in the coming weeks so we then go back into the arena for our next match the world's most dangerous man ken shamrock versus china who is accompanied by triple h and I feel like I've gone a bit overboard with the theme songs in this episode since I already played Steve Blackman's new theme, as well as the Stooges entering to Real American. But I'm going to play China's entrance here as well because she also enters to a noteworthy new theme song. <laughs>
0: confrontation that we have ever had the opportunity to broadcast here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Triple H uh, escorting the ninth wonder of the world China to the ring where China will meet King Shamrock. and a company by Triple H the corporate China. I thought Shawn Michaels said that there's going to be no Triple H in this match. Well, I'm sure that's still a uh, Triple
1: H and so I'm sure many of you recognize that as Triple H's future theme song, My Time, but in this case, China's actually entering to an instrumental version of it by Jim Johnston called Higher Brain Pattern, which, for the record, is a really stupid name. I have to admit, though, I had zero recollection of China and Triple H using a version with no lyrics. I'm not sure how long it lasts, but now you know that this was indeed a thing. So, anywho, as we saw earlier tonight in that backstage promo, Shamrock expressed a reluctance to hit a woman. In fact, he's so conflicted, he just walks to the ring without doing his usual punching himself in the face on the steps routine. So, China tries to provoke Shamrock, but instead, Kenny keeps focusing on Triple H and telling him that this is his problem. So, let's take a listen to what happens here. Oh, and uh, be sure to listen for a few instances of Shamrock loudly yelling, fuck, uncensored on the WWE Network.
0: You know, you know what? Shamrock can only be pushed so far. Go for it! Go for it! She's gonna snap. Uh oh! Uh-oh. China, three times she's she put her hands on Ken Shamrock, and now Shamrock grabbing Tonic by the throat and from behind is Triple H and Helmsley now, who's not even supposed to be out here, right? China just knocked down the referee. It is. Shamrock with a belly to belly suplex. Good God. Shamrock just snapped. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. And Shamrock now has really snapped here. Shamrock with a belly to belly suplex. China and Helmsley forced him
1: So as you heard there, China shoved Shamrock and hit him with a few forearms until Kenny could no longer take it, and yes, he grabbed China by the throat. Ee. However, Triple H then tried to intervene, but Shamrock knocked him down and he then nailed China with a belly to belly suplex which got a huge pop from the crowd. So remember how Shamrock was saying earlier that he was raised to not hit a woman under any circumstances? Well, when he does it here, the fans basically say, "'Fuck yeah, we love that you hit that woman!' I mean, talk about mixed messaging, good lord." But Shamrock immediately regrets nailing China with that suplex, so he rolls out of the ring, angrily kicks the steel steps, and then heads right back up the ramp, pissed off at himself, so apparently we have no match whatsoever. But we did have a segment which was built around a jacked-up crazy guy choking a woman, so there's that. 1999 sure was a fun time, wasn't it? (sighs) And so, after one final commercial break, it is now time for your main event of the evening, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, and Vince McMahon versus corporate ministry members The Undertaker, Triple H, and Shane McMahon, accompanied by China, with Commissioner Shawn Michaels acting as the special guest referee. And by the way, instead of wearing a black and white referee shirt, HBK is wearing a t-shirt advertising the Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy, which literally opened a few weeks before this show, and is still going to this very day under the different name of the Texas Wrestling Academy. And most notably, just a few months after this episode of Raw airs, a fresh out of high school, Brian Danielson, will drive all the way from Aberdeen, Washington, to San Antonio, Texas, where he will enroll to train at that very academy. Pretty cool stuff, if you ask me. Also noteworthy is the fact that The Rock is sporting a cast on his left arm, which is presumably the result of him suffering some sort of injury after being thrown off the stage last week. Not sure if this is a recurring thing or if it's one night only, but let's just say that I don't really remember The Rock wearing a cast for any lengthy period of time. So the Corporate Ministry comes out first, followed by Vince and The Rock, but before Stone Cold can even emerge from backstage, Shane jumps Vince and tosses him into the ring, where The Undertaker immediately nails the chairman with a tombstone. Starting off pretty hot here, it seems. And then, of course, when they finally do hit Austin's music, the Orlando crowd explodes. They've done this move a couple times where a match starts without Stone Cold arriving yet, but then when he does, the fans absolutely come unglued, perhaps even more so than usual. I approve. Although really, once again, the term match is a rather loose term here, because really it's more of an every-man-for-himself situation. Basically, Austin and The Undertaker brawl with each other at ringside, Rock and Triple H brawl elsewhere at ringside, Vince has already been knocked out by that tombstone, and somehow Shane gets taken out off-screen, presumably by The Rock. Eventually though, Austin, Rock, Taker, and Hunter take their brawling into the ring, and I should note, when all four of our main participants are front and center, we get a loud, ROCKY chant from the crowd instead of the usual Austin chant. And by the way, that's not a knock on Stone Cold, I think that's just a big indication that The Rock is clearly on his way up. But that brief in-ring detour doesn't last long, because pretty soon all four of them go right back to the floor and start brawling, at which point Shane McMahon takes the opportunity to roll Vince into the ring while his father is still dazed by getting hit from The Undertaker's tombstone. And so, let's pick it up from there.
0: Just beat the hell out of each other. Both McMahons are back in the ring. Yeah, but Vincent's got a tombstone and a chokeslam from The Undertaker. I guess! Shane, the elbow, and his own dad. Shane is on Dream Street as well, but he's in the better shape of the two. Boom! Austin and The Undertaker. Undertaker on the outside. Austin back in the ring now. And Austin. Ah! The stunner! Austin with a stunner! Down goes The Undertaker! This is covering Shane. One, two. What? And Austin just pulled this out of Shane. What's up with that? I don't know. Austin wants him himself. He wants him himself. He wants him more
1: Okay, so what you heard there was Shane hitting Vince with multiple elbow drops while they were alone in the ring. However, Stone Cold eventually rolled back in, at which point he nailed Shane with a stunner. And when he did that, Shane landed on the mat right next to his father. So Vince covered him, special guest referee Shawn Michaels went to the ground to count the pinfall, and Stone Cold pulled Vince off of Shane before he could get the three-count. That seemed awfully strange. But no matter, because after only a few seconds of confusion, Austin picked up Shane, nailed him with another stunner, and then he pinned the Boy Wonder, picking up the victory for the team of Austin, Rock, and Vince. So yes, even though Stone Cold and the Chairman have been on the same page lately, Austin still wasn't about to allow Vince to get the winning pinfall in this match, so I guess they aren't totally buddy-buddy just yet. And then, after the match concluded, Stone Cold did his usual celebration of having several beers thrown to him, one of which he actually tossed to Shawn Michaels, and the show went off the air with the WWF champion celebrating another victory. Pretty fun way to end a show that a whole shitload of people witnessed, but we're not done yet, because we have to dive a little bit deeper into exactly how many people watched, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up.
0: Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik We dedicated the cast that's been thugging Vinny passed, out more hoes than Jim Duggan I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind It won't let me back in Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlick Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak Now the Stone Cold on my favorite maniacs The top rooster plucking, chickens
1: when they're clucking Cause WWF stands for winter, where we Fuckin' the ratings recap. So as you are no doubt aware by now, when it comes to the television ratings, this was a historic episode of Monday Night Raw due to the fact that Nitro was preempted by the NBA playoffs. And by the way, for you basketball connoisseurs out there, in case you were wondering, the playoff games which were shown instead of Nitro were Dikembe Matumbo's Atlanta Hawks defeating Grant Hill's Detroit Pistons 89-69, to and yikes, what a shitty game that must have been, and then after that, Rashid Wallace's Portland Trailblazers defeated Jason Kidd's Phoenix Suns, 110-99, just in case you wanted to know. And before I dive deeper here, I just want to give a quick explanation, because I've been talking about the ratings for 73 episodes now, but some of you are probably wondering what the hell it means when Raw scores a 5.8 or a 6.5 or whatever. So basically, here's the quick explanation. If a show scores a 5.5 rating, it means that 5.5% of all televisions in the United States are watching the show. Simple enough? Okay then. So now let's get into the main event and touch on the Raw ratings for this week. So in the previous week's issue of the Wrestling Observer, it was noted that the industry expectation was that Raw would top a 7.0 rating for the first time ever since they had routinely been putting up numbers in the high fives to mid sixes over the past few months. Because remember, even though Nitro was not on the air, there's still no guarantee that a WCW-friendly audience will automatically just switch over to watch the competition. And so, the WWF surely had to be pleased when the final rating came in, and it was... an 8.1. You heard that correctly, 8.1% of all televisions in the United States were watching Raw. Basically, one out of every 12 television sets in the country had Raw on tonight. To make further sense of that number, that translates to an average of more than 9 million people all watching Raw on this night. And in fact, during the main event, that quarter-hour segment shot all the way up to a 9.17 rating, meaning more than 10 million people were watching the six-man tag match. That means that Austin, Rock, and Vince versus Undertaker, Triple H, and Shane is officially the most-watched wrestling match in the history of cable television. Although, shockingly, just about a month and a half from now, there will be a match on Raw that beats that quarter-hour while they're opposed by Nitro. Unbelievable, but true. And as I alluded to earlier, the match pitting Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe against the Main Street Posse drew an 8.61 rating for their quarter hour, the second most watched segment of the night. So yes, more than 9 million people were glued to their screens to watch two old guys beat up some rich punks. Oh, and uh, for the sake of comparison, the NBA playoffs on TNT on this night averaged a 1.2 rating. So Raw's audience was almost seven times as high as the NBA's. Boy, oh boy, I sure do miss those days, don't you? And for a moment here, I want to flash back to December 15th, 1997. And I go to that date because that's the episode of Raw where Vince did his infamous announcement introducing us all to the Attitude Era. And that episode of Raw scored a 2.7 rating. So in the span of less than a year and a half, Raw has literally tripled its rating. Pretty insane to think about, especially in the present day where it seems like all they do is lose viewers week to week. And on that note, for the sake of comparison, as I'm writing this right now in the present day, the most recent episode of Raw in 2019 drew 2.13 million viewers, from 9 million in 1999 to just over 2 million in 2019. So the next time someone tells you Vince McMahon is a genius, just remember that he's lost 76% of his audience over the past 20 years. Just saying. So yes, this episode was a huge success in the ratings, but how was it in terms of quality? Well, for that, let's go to the raw synopsis. So all in all, I would say, pretty good show. Some of the stuff here we definitely didn't need, particularly the not at all over acolytes fighting each other, that way too long nightstick on a pole match, and the Billy Gunn Kane match where Billy forgot how to sell and Kane looks like a moron. Also, a segment entirely built around the concept of Will Ken Shamrock hit a woman is a bit cringe-worthy here in the present day. However, there was enough good stuff here to make this show worth watching, particularly the very fun main event, the return of Cactus Jack, the surprisingly lengthy Val Venus-Jeff Jarrett match, and of course, Patterson and Briscoe mocking Hulk Hogan. Also, and this kind of goes without saying, Shawn Michaels is one entertaining bastard. He did such a good job with that promo, and he totally fooled me with the reveal that he was actually one of the SWAT guys, so great swerve there from HBK. So yes, all in all, I'd give the show a thumbs in the middle, trending upward. If you're ever curious and want to watch the show that broke almost every possible ratings record for wrestling on cable television, definitely give this one a look. Just try not to depress yourself by thinking of how few people watch the show these days. And before we wrap up, let's go to this week's edition of The Wrestling Observer to see what else was going on this week. So the night before this episode of Raw, WCW aired its slambery pay-per-view at the TWA Dome in St. Louis, which was headlined by your head booker Kevin Nash, defeating Diamond Dallas Page to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, as well as the on-camera returns of both Bret Hart and Eric Bischoff. So WCW had actually just done an episode of Nitro in this same building back in December, and they drew 30,000 fans for that show, even though there was a massive snowstorm going on. However, for Slamboree, they drew a still-respectable 20,000 fans, but only 13,000 paid. Spoiler alert, the days of WCW doing shows in domes will soon be coming to an end. So how does WCW plan on reinvigorating fan interest? Well, apparently they've discussed bringing in both Sid and Yokozuna. Another spoiler here, Sid will actually be coming in pretty soon, but Yoko never does, presumably because there's no way he'd be able to pass a physical. Remember, we're only about five months away from the disastrous Heroes of Wrestling pay-per-view that Yoko works on, and on that show his weight is estimated to be 760 pounds. Sweet Jesus. And in more WCW news, Goldberg is attempting to renegotiate his contract, since he is pretty much the company's biggest star at the moment, but his $800,000 salary is well below the likes of Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Bret Hart, etc. If I recall correctly, they do eventually sign him to a new deal, much to the dismay of Eric Bischoff. Go figure. In WWF news, most of what is discussed this week in The Observer is Raw's ridiculous rating, but Dave Meltzer does touch on a few other things. In particular, he refers to the Stooges-Posse match as one of the best segments on Raw in the past few months, which I found surprising considering he's known for his star ratings of matches and, well, it obviously wasn't much of a match. I kinda assumed he'd shit all over it, but no, just like the rest of us, he enjoyed it. And in other news from Raw, as I alluded to earlier in this podcast, there is a bit more of a backstory to that sable Deborah match for the women's title. So why did they do the finish where Deborah was stripped of her evening gown, but she won the title anyway? Well, apparently, Sable and the WWF have been at odds recently because she doesn't want to do jobs or lose the belt. The goofy evening gown match reversal was essentially a compromise of getting the title off of her without Sable needing to take a bump or eat a pinfall. The WWF is very much worried about Sable quitting the company, so they're trying to appease her as best they can, which, to say the least, does not end up working out very well. We'll have more on that in the coming shows, but let's just say this relationship ends quite badly. And finally, in some lighthearted news, if you listen to the previous episode of this podcast, you'll remember that I mentioned how WCW is releasing a new cologne called Nitro for Men. Well, of all people, David Letterman jumped on this announcement, and he actually dedicated one of his top ten lists on The Late Show to the top ten slogans for WCW cologne. And yes, I will read them for you here, but I will just preface this in advance by saying that a lot of these really lean into the wrestling fan stereotypes. But honestly, though, I'm not even mad about it because pretty much every mainstream story about wrestling around this point in time kind of had that air to it like, this is for brain-dead redneck Hicks. It was just our struggle in 1999, folks. Hashtag, mostly not true. But anyway, here are David Letterman's top 10 slogans for WCW Cologne as presented on the May 4th 1999 episode of the late show number 10 attract them white trash babes number nine sometimes you just want to smell phony number eight like a pile driver up your nose number seven the exciting scent of the lowest common denominator (laughs) okay i kind of i did kind of laugh at that one number six if you actually bought michael jordan's cologne you might as well buy this number five the perfect gift for uh it's really hard to say Number four, give a bottle to that Nancy boy son of yours. It couldn't hurt. Oof. Number three, this stuff can make you governor. Number two, because when you're sitting on your ass all day watching wrestling, you've got to smell your best. And the number one slogan for WCW cologne, finally. So there you have it. And by the way, if any of you listeners out there actually bought WCW cologne or the WWF's Attitude cologne, please let me know because I would love to get your thoughts on it. Needless to say, I am intrigued. But so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience, and of course, if you do that, I'll be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or, if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes without writing a review, because that's helpful too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip from, of all things, Pete Gass' appearance on Sam Roberts' podcast. Why? because on that show, he talks about this very night and how the ratings were so high. And just to be clear, in this clip, I'm pretty sure Pete is confusing their segment with the rating for the entire show, because the Stooges-Posse match was not even the highest-rated segment on this episode of Raw, but he's talking like it was. In fact, the highest-rated segment in Raw history will come a little bit later in June, but obviously this is, of course, the highest-rated episode of Raw ever, so I think he's just confusing the two. But anyway, enjoy that clip, and I will catch you next time.
3: Raw in 1999 was the biggest show right. on TV. It was the biggest, yep. you know? So now here we are. We're there. And we were only, we were only there about a month and a half. Mm-hmm. And we lose the Loser, loser Leaf Town match against Briscoe and Patterson. Right. And that was supposed to be it. Right. Our vacation and that's, and that's
0: time. kind of perfect. It's Vince's Stooges versus yep. Shane Stooges. Shane's Stooges, Stooges and, and, right.
3: Yeah. And it's a way of us getting, getting us out the door. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the highest-rated 15-minute segments <laughs> oh, in cable history.
0: And are you? So you sitting there like, because obviously you're depressed again, because it's the end of your run again, right? And right. And then when you find out
3: what the rating was, this is awesome. Yeah, tell me. So, I, I, sh- I told you Vince never showed us any favoritism once we in the business. The ratings come out for that Monday Night Raw. We're driving home the following day. Phone rings. It's Shane. Hey guys, what's going on? You a know, great job last night. Blah blah blah. Uh, someone wants to talk to you, boys. <laughs> hey Vince. <laughs> he told me that he told us, Rodney, and I on speaker, that he was proud of us. He and he never had, said that to us. And you
0: had that you just said <clears throat> a minute ago. You had a
3: familial relationship with him outside of the business. So this yeah. is this
0: is this is a when paternal.
3: I, when I say he never like said stuff like oh i'm proud of you guys and nothing like that right it was always you know like we'd hang out have beers so we, we we've watched playoff football games you'd in look the up to him. absolutely right yeah, so, absolutely. so it's just a different it's not only do you look up to him because now you work for him but you've looked up to him for a long long time yes yes yeah yeah and you know he's he was like another father to us you know but he never gave us that that type of statement. Right. So when he did, I remember being in the car driving. I was driving, Rodney was in the passenger seat. And we just looked at each other. Didn't say anything. You know, just... But, you know, then we realized, and we said, you know, thank you very much. He's like, do you guys realize with the talent that we have, the rock and stone cold, no one's had a higher rating than you? <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, and it lasted for a year. I don't even know if it's ever been broken. Uh-huh. I don't know the... The whole history of it. I remember I saw uh, Briscoe, mm-hmm. Gerald Briscoe, years later. He was mm-hmm. getting, the year he got inducted to the Hall of Fame. I saw him the, uh, the night before. He hugged me and he whispered in my ear, We still got the record. <laughs> <laughs>